going. Roger Williams. Brain freeze. <laughs> Author of the Metamorphosis of Prime <laughs> Intellect. <laughs> it's, just, it's just mini stroke. I was like, where am I? What am I doing? The fuck is my name? Just, just you know. Every once in a while, I forget what I'm doing. This this incarnation on this planet. It's like, oh, I'm playing human. I'm doing podcast. All right, just remember the script, asshole. So, <laughs> I got bad news about what happens when you get older. Did it happen more? <sighs> hey, you know what? Fuck it. Fuck it. Oh, I can't reverse it, so you might as well grab it with you know two hands and just be like, let's ride this bitch out. All part of life's cool plan. Yep, that's that's. I have friends that use like yeah, they use like different cream on their face to look less wrinkly. They like they're already dyeing their hair. I'm like, dog, it's fucking. It's not. You're not stopping it, man. You're not stopping it. Yeah. Let it ride. Let it ride. <laughs> I I don't do it. You might notice my my hair is a little rough. Uh, I haven't had it professionally cut since about 1993. You look goddamn um, beautiful, Roger. Shut up. <laughs> No, I used to have it styled, and yeah. uh, that was back when I was a service technician, mm -hmm. and so you're supposed to look neat and all, and I wore green dickies with the name tag and all yeah, that, yeah, yeah. but as computers got to be more of a thing in the industry where I worked, I started actually building systems for people and writing software, mm -hmm. and I showed up one day for a job and told the secretary, our customer, I'm here to uh, update the, pro the, the software in your scale computer. And she looked at me and said, oh, I thought you were here to spray for bugs. <laughs> so in a way, that was, the last, <laughs> that was the last day I wore the green dickies. Okay. I went, bought myself some jewelry, uh, let my hair grow, and uh, started. Uh, all I do is when my hair gets in my bangs, I stand in front of a mirror and use a pair of scissors to cut it back so it's not in my eyes anymore. And... Uh, Amazingly, I probably saved tens of thousands of dollars probably. over the years. Probably, man. Go and get, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's, but, fuck that shit. Just fucking ride it out. You but, shit. I had a friend who started going bald in his, his uh, late 20s, though, and this, the stuff that he went through trying to stop it uh, was just unbelievable. But I have a co-worker who had the same, the same condition, and he just laughs it off. He just said, fuck it, shaved his head. And that was it. I think that's you what know? you have to do. I think if it starts going, yeah. I, I had a family member, uh, an uncle, and yeah, he started going bald when he was really young. And yeah, I think he really struggled with it for like 10 years. And then he was just like, fuck it. Just fuck it. It's just, I'm, yeah. I mean, the last thing you want to do is a laughable comb over, right? Yeah. So. I think you just got to go. Yeah. I think you got to get a razor and just clean it and just. Plus, when you have when you are completely shaved, like bald, bald, I mean, no one's gonna fuck with you because it's like no one knows is, is that guy bald because he's he's dodging like the you know pattern baldness, or is he an assassin? Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's 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 yeah. it's one or the other. It's, or or, it, or 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 is he flirting with the big C and we need to keep a distance and exactly, go. exactly. <laughs> so it's it's. Yeah, dude, it's I have on I've had on Dale Comstock on here, and uh, he's a Delta Force guy. I've had him on this podcast several times. His head's completely shaved. I've never seen a picture of him without a shaved head, even like thirty years ago. So I don't that, but that's someone where it's like, is it 
baldness or is it just because it's more efficient to kill like well with those guys they apparently they especially don't want long hair because it becomes a handle that can be used exactly as a weapon against yeah, you yeah so i understand that completely just, yeah uh, now my dad now my dad spent two years in the navy which he spent entirely teaching at the Naval Postgraduate School in Monterey, California. And to this day, he won't go to Applebee's and get the, you know, on Veterans Day and get the, he says, I don't feel like I served. I didn't go to combat or anything mm-hmm. like that. But they made him wear a crew cut and he just adopted that style and he's worn a crew cut ever since. He's, yeah. he's 79 years old and he's still, Rocking gives it. himself a crew cut every, now today. He's got the electric razor. And yeah. just, mm-hmm. Hey, man, that's the way to go, dude. It's, all right. Yeah, let's jump into so it. So anyway, I promised show and tell. Woo! So for my first yeah. thing, this is my radio. Jesus. Which I built in 2014 from a set of plans that was published around 1930 in Boys Life magazine. Um, Jesus Christ. It doesn't, drive a, it doesn't drive a loudspeaker, so you have to use an earpiece or a headset. Yeah. But... Uh, you have your regeneration control because this is a regenerative receiver and the tuning. And of course I am the kind of guy who had a multi-turn counting dial in my junk box, Mm -hmm. but to see the business end, this is your, your regeneration. When you turn it, it varies the amount of coupling between the tickler coil and the receiving coil. So what it actually does is it feeds the amplified energy from the output of the tube back into the antenna circuit. And that makes it both more sensitive and more selective about adjacent signals. And this is the tuning mechanism. So let me get this up here. Uh-huh. This is a homemade variable capacitor. You can see those <laughs> two, uh, the sewing thread uh, pulleys were part of the boy's life plan. Uh, now boy's life has done the uh, build-your-own-radio kit thing every couple of years since about the beginning of technology. And you can date the plans by that they use. Mm -hmm. Uh, This tube I will be getting to very shortly uh, because I have some others similar to it. But you'll notice that there are very few pieces on here that I didn't build myself. Mm -hmm. Uh, In 1930, there were not a lot of junk radios that you could rob parts from. So... Uh, this was designed to be built with stuff that you could scrounge because this was published during the Great Depression. Uh, so th- there was an assumption you wouldn't be going off to buy parts. And uh, having a collection of over 400 tubes uh, from various areas and all, uh, I wanted to just do something with at least one of them to prove that they are actual functional devices Mm -hmm. and that radio actually works um the advantage that it has over a crystal set uh obviously the family is not going to sit around it listening because it won't drive a loudspeaker Mm -hmm. but the advantage it does have if you're a kid and it's 1929 or 30 is that it will pull in stations that are fairly distant which Mm -hmm. a crystal set won't uh crystal set will only pull in strong local stations this receiver will pull in stations hundreds or even thousands of miles away if they're powerful enough so in 1929 you could have used this radio you could have been sitting where you are in maryland and probably pulled in wwl in new orleans uh, on a good night with good propagation uh so that was the idea and uh 
I've seen some of their more modern plans. It's like in the 50s, they used miniature tubes and uh-huh. they had parts that you would scrounge from dead radios because those were more common than dirt after a certain point. But that design is 90 years old. Jesus and the vacuum and the vacuum tube that powers it is about 90 years old and it still works. It's it's so you can so you, you can listen to a radio. You can listen to a radio channel on that thing. Yes. Uh, in fact, after Katrina, I used that radio because I realized a little too late that it was the only battery-powered radio left in the house. Uh, actually, when Rita hit, I had just come back after they lifted the evacuation, uh-huh. and Rita hit and knocked the power out again. And I actually used that radio to make sure that everything was okay the morning after. Uh, because uh, <laughs> now if I was really using it a lot, I would have probably rebuilt it because the variable capacitor isn't quite right and it's heavily loaded toward the bottom of the broadcast band. It doesn't really receive the top of the broadcast band. But if I was a kid with an unlimited amount of time, I would have just taken it apart and used a slightly thinner insulator on it and tried it again until I got it right. Mm-hmm. But anyway... This related device, this is the oldest vacuum tube I own by design. Uh, And it is the second oldest by manufacturing date. This is an O1A. And uh, one of the characteristics of the O1s was, you notice you can't see the interior elements at all. It's got this silver coating. Uh, And the reason for that is the silver coating is called a getter. And they, pump it into the tube as the last step before they seal it up. And what it does is it mops up gas molecules that are still flying around. Maybe they were embedded in the metal before you seal the tube and then they come loose later. And the getter is made of a reactive metal like magnesium. So what it does is it gets any stray molecules that are flying around so that they don't gas up the interior of the tube. And, uh, When a tube goes bad, like this one, the getter turns white because it fully reacts. It turns into oxide. So you can see this is a dead tube. This this has air inside of it. Okay. Now, so this is the O1A. Uh, The original O1s made in 1922 when this tube was designed took uh, five volts at one amp. So they used about five watts of power to heat the filament. Okay. This O1A, uh, those were the two O1s. This this one is an O1A. It is a little later in the 1920s design. It uses five volts at 120 milliamps, so it uses uh, about six tenths of a watt. Um, So it's much more efficient than the older ones, but it's exactly the same electrically uh, as far as its behavior as an amplifier. It has a gain of about eight, so if you put a one-volt signal into it, you get eight volts out, um, which is crap by modern standards but at the time it was miraculous because it was an amplifier man Um, now our next exhibit is very closely related this is a type 30 this is the same tube that came that that i used in the radio i just showed you Mm -hmm. and this is essentially the same tube as an O1A electrically, but it's a later design. The design for this tube is late 20s. It's about five years more modern. And this one was actually made before my O1A, I think, though. Um, just I have some hints on the manufacturing uh, codes and stuff. 
But this tube is essentially the same electrically, uh, and I actually have articles that tell you how to take your old radio that was built for O1As and convert it to 30s, because this tube uses two volts at 60 milliamps to heat its heater. So it is five times more efficient than the O1A and 100 times more efficient than its predecessor. This tube is so efficient that you can't see it glowing. If you if you actually you know the whole thing about you you open the back of your yeah, tube TV yeah. set and you see the little dull red glow of all the tubes, I was very disappointed when I built that radio and turned it on and I real I was like, why isn't the tube glowing? And I finally realized because it's not supposed to. It's not visible unless you turn out like all the lights in the room. Yeah. Um, so this is an example of the state of the art of electronic design around 1930. The O1A is widely considered to be the most popular tube of the 1920s. If you owned a, any piece of consumer electronics, which mainly meant you owned a radio, uh, it was full of O1As. Um, and there was a progression during the decade. In the beginning of the 1920s, there was no consumer electronics. There was no transmitters. There were no commercial radio stations. The, the entire industry didn't exist. Moving back in time uh, to where I don't have any samples, when the uh, I, I mentioned in our last talk that Thomas Edison, of all people, invented the vacuum tube mm -hmm. when he was trying to invent the light bulb. He discovered that you had a one-way current flow situation uh, between the filament of a light bulb and a plate that was suspended in its, in its bulb. It was uh, Fleming who figured out that this would make a boss radio receiver because that's what you need in a radio detector is to detect the waves one way but not the other so they'll add up to DC and okay. they can pull in the cone of a speaker or, okay. or a headset. Okay. Uh, at the time, they were using things like crystal detectors, which were finicky, and you would have to like find the sensitive spot, and uh, you know that's which is a lot of fun if you're on a ship trying to. Uh, contact someone because you're sinking. Uh, so the Fleming valve was much more reliable. But in those early days, in, the, in around 1900, all they had were what they called bright emitters, which meant that the filament glowed like a light bulb. It used a lot of power. That early O1A was a bright emitter. And uh, the difference between the, O1, the original 201 and the O1A was the thoriated filament, which didn't have to burn as hot to emit enough electrons for the tube's electronic section to do its thing. And that was a thing that was being constantly improved once the 20s came around. Mm -hmm. But in the in the 19 aughts, uh, it wasn't understood very well. Now, it was Lee DeForest, I want to say in 1906, who figured out that if you put a grid of, of, of wires between that filament and plate, that you could put a small voltage on the grid and it would block a much larger flow, a much larger voltage trying to, to be conducted from the cathode to the plate. And that made it an amplifier. But DeForest didn't realize how his invention worked. He figured out how to use it as a radio detector, and it was much better than anything else that existed. And so he patented the crap out of it and jealously defended those patents whenever anyone did anything to remotely threaten them. Yeah. But all he knew about using it was that it made a really boss radio detector. He didn't realize it could be used for other things. And it was around 1910 that some other guys came along and figured out the actual 
mechanism by which it worked and that you could build other circuits with it. You could do other things. Mm-hmm. So what uh, the, the, the first really popular vacuum tube that there were a lot of was called the Type R. And it was made for radio sets in World War One. And that was a situation where uh, they needed tubes that were rugged, that didn't have finicky controls. Some of the older tubes had like little bulbs that would release gas into the envelope. Uh, uh, DeForest thought you had to have some gas in the envelope for it to work. And uh, the people who came after particularly uh, Armstrong realized that you didn't actually, it worked fine. In fact, it worked better with a hard vacuum. Uh, so they were easier to use. So the, the type R hard vacuum valves were the first tubes in uh, m- more than single use case. They weren't handmade. They were manufactured. Mm-hmm. They had replaceable bases so you could replace them if you got, you know, you're getting shot at with this. They were made for use in war. But they still weren't consumer devices. That, yeah. that would come later. After the war... They still weren't consumer devices, but because they were being surplused, some radio amateurs got a hold of them and figured out how to use them to build transmitters that could transmit voice. Mm -hmm. And this was a big thing because most transmitters in the 19-teens were spark gap transmitters. And a spark gap is basically a switch. It shorts out, a bunch of current flows, and then the gap collapses and it stops. Mm So it's it's what is called in tech speak a class D negative resistance. Boy, you don't get to say that very often. Um, the thing about it is it generates a shitload of noise and it's a very messy signal. To, to transmit voice, you've got to have something that generates a sine wave, a pure tone at radio frequencies and there were very few ways to do this there was a guy who invented a very inefficient style of electrical arc that was mediated by a gas environment that could do it but it wasn't very practical and there was also a style but what basically amounted to a dynamo to, to a generator on steroids that could generate super duper high frequency current by rotating this like mm-hmm. zillion pole thing and in, in, at high speeds yeah but with the vacuum tube you can build a natural oscillator that generates a clean signal and then you can modulate it so that on your crystal set you hear a person talking or music and by 1920 what you had was basically a few amateurs uh setting up experimental transmitting stations for the hell of it uh and they would have a few friends that uh, knew about it and would build crystal sets to listen or whatever and word would spread so if you were in one of these towns in 1922 there was probably maybe six of them in the entire united states but if you were sufficiently motivated and you heard oh man this dude across town set up a transmitter he's playing music every night i want to get in on this yeah well you would start building a, a, a simple set you might build a, a set like that most of those early radios were what they call tune radio frequency. They didn't have the regeneration. They didn't have anything fancy. If you did want the family to be able to sit around and listen, you would generally have five or six of those 01A tubes, though, to get enough amplification to take that microvolt radio signal and get it to a speaker where the family could sit around and listen to it. 
What a, that was a situation was in say. the early 20s. And then uh, that set would be battery powered. There would be a 45 volt A battery that powers the plates of the tubes. You might notice I had three nine volt batteries over here. That was my A. That was my actually that's the B battery. Excuse me. Uh, that powers the the actual amplification thing for the plates of the tubes. Then you would have an A battery for the filaments because the filaments used a lot of power in the early 20s. You generally that was a lead acid battery. And in fact, the Type 30 has a two-volt filament. It's designed to be heated by a single-cell lead-acid battery. Mm -hmm. And you would take that down to the auto shop every once in a while to have it charged. Mm -hmm. the, the B batteries were a thing. You could walk into a hardware store in 1923 <clears throat> and buy a 45-volt battery, just like you can buy a 9-volt cell today mm -hmm. because that was what the technology of the day required. So... As the 20s progressed, these stations became more common because one guy would see that the guy 200 miles over there has got people listening to him and people are interested. So he would set up and there wasn't a lot <coughs> of, of variability. What these stations mostly did was they played vinyl records and they did things like get the newspaper from Chicago and read it mm -hmm. over the air. Uh, they didn't have any way to record audio they didn't pirates. have any other sources for print programming. Everything was live. Um, so that, and that was the status through the middle of the 20 uh, of the 1920s. Now toward the end of the twenties, it was getting popular enough that in some cities you could actually go into a department store and buy a console radio. Yeah. And in those days, it still generally required that you string up a long wire antenna and a good earth ground, uh, or it wouldn't work. <coughs> Excuse me. Some of them had regeneration controls. The thing about that regeneration control is, you, is you, you you tickle it closer and closer, you know, and it gets it gets louder and louder and sharper and sharper until it bursts into oscillation and breaks your eardrums. Yeah. So, <laughs> uh, so that was not considered a consumer friendly feature, sure. even though it was very, uh, it was very. Uh, efficient way to make a sensitive radio. Uh, some of them had tuned radio frequency, a, a tuned radio frequency amplifier followed by a bunch of audio stages. Some would have two tuned radio frequency stages, but because the tech wasn't really up to ganging them together, you would actually have to tune them separately to the same frequency. Mm -hmm. So that wasn't a consumer friendly feature either. Um, it was in the 30s. Uh, during the 20s, there was a lot of research being done. The Pentode was invented in 1926, but it didn't become a commercial product uh, until later. It uh, used a couple of extra grids to uh, more efficiently amplify stronger signals, higher frequency signals. Uh, it eliminated some of the uh, – there, there, there were just other odd problems that are hard to describe without using a little math. But mm -hmm. the, the triode was a bit limited. Um so there were advanced designs that corrected this, but almost all of these tubes had this four pin socket, which is, if you think about it, this is, this is the minimum for a triode. It's a light bulb, right? It's got two pins for a filament, a pin for a plate and a pin for the grid. That's what makes it an amplifier. Mm -hmm. Well, during the late twenties, they started inventing tubes that had more elements. And so they needed more pins. And so for a while, there was a five pin socket, a six pin socket, a seven pin socket. 
Well, the radio manufacturers ultimately got tired of that noise because Mm -hmm. they didn't want to stock five different styles of tube socket if they were going to use more than one type of tube in a radio design. Mm -hmm. So what ultimately happened was uh, everything standardized. This, this one's missing a couple of pins that weren't installed, but this is the standard bayonet octal base. Okay. But, uh, yeah, I can see it. I think you can see. Okay, so oh. it has eight pins surrounded by a little cylinder with a key. Uh, and unlike the four pin, all the pins are the same size. Uh, and during the 30s, one of the things that happened is almost all of the tubes of the 20s that were still used for anything were reissued with different tube numbers, but it was the same tube mounted on a, the octal base instead of a four pin base or a six or seven or whatever. So uh, a 1V6 is a type 30 on an octal base. Mm-hmm. And, but if you had a, or a, in fact, that for a while they made adapters. So if you had an older radio that wanted a 30, but by this time it was like maybe 1935 uh, or, or 1938, and uh, it was easier to find the new standardized octal tubes. Then they had adapters where you could buy the adapter, plug it into the old socket, and plug your tube into the top of the adapter. Mm-hmm. That was a thing that was uh, that would go on throughout the 1970s. In fact, as tubes went generational, every change that was made, uh, a lot of the old stuff was migrated and became the new stuff with different base styles and different envelopes and other little tweaks. But uh, anyway, uh, was, where were we going to go I next was, with this? I was thinking, like, uh, what, a, what a weird, like, like technocratic elite, like the people that first knew about the radios and, like, playing music. Like, everyone else that doesn't know about them, they don't know about them, yet they're bathing in them. It's like right now, oh, yeah. only you know that this song is playing, but everyone else is just fucking walking around like, you know, look at the Model T. And it's like there's fucking yeah. jazz in the air, but only a couple know about it. It, it. it was it was just like that. There was a sense of mystery about it because yeah. you were plucking these signals out of nowhere. And, yeah. you know, you had and it was a two way thing because you had the people putting the signals there. Yeah. And so they were getting a satisfaction out of that. And yeah. then you had the people who were receiving them. And it was it was kind of snowballing. Uh, and it was encouraged by particularly David Sarnoff at RCA. He mm-hmm. had a vision of a broadcast radio industry mm-hmm. that would have transmitters and stations that were professionally manned and licensed and networked with uh, networks of uh, relay stations to share programming. And then there, that would create a market for receivers mm-hmm. so that consumers who were not technically savvy could just go to the department store and buy a radio, take it home, put it on the desktop, turn it on and listen to radio. Mm-hmm. It wasn't until the late thirties that it really became practical to walk into a department store, know nothing about radio, tell the salesman, I've heard about, you know, there's radio broadcasts. I can hear the president talking with one of these. That was one of the big draws, in fact. You you were probably the fireside chats. That wasn't just a good idea that Franklin Roosevelt had. It had never been technically feasible before. It was only possible because CBS had built a radio network that could share that real-time programming among all of its member stations, 
And that was one of the things that got a lot of stations joining the network sure. too, was to have access to things like that. And then once you have a network, you can do things like radio serial programs yeah. and you can have a news department of your own and, and generate your own content. And advertisements. And so, Start putting so out it advertisements. Was a, yeah. It was a thing that's, yeah, it's, it was a thing that snowballed. Yeah. And by the, by the late thirties, it was, uh, you, you could go into a department store, buy a radio, you could just plug it into the wall. You wouldn't need to go out buying weird batteries. You didn't need to string up a long wire antenna. They had learned to use loop antennas in the back of the radio that captured the magnetic part of the electromagnetic wave instead of the long wire capturing the electric field. Yeah. And that didn't catch as much energy because it was smaller, but what it did catch was more efficient because it was a magnetic detector and you had a coil instead of a single wire. And with amplification, it was good enough. Mm -hmm. And so you didn't have all of this setup. You could use it if you lived in an apartment or uh, in a house on a small lot in the suburb where you didn't have room for the antenna. A lot of the early guys who were doing this were farmers, but so they would you know, they, okay, we need to run a 200 foot antenna. So, uh, yeah, we can string it between here and the barn. Yeah. Um, that, that was actually, and of course, a lot of these guys were also uh, what we call ham operators today. They were also operating transmitters of their own, but not for broadcast. They were doing just like contacts yeah. and stuff. Well, so, yeah. so anyway. I was going to say uh, right, right now, the fireside tweets. Yeah. <laughs> uh, this is one of the early power tubes. And this is also about a 1930s-ish design. This is an 809, and it's a power triode. And as you can see, it's like the type 30 there on steroids. Um, notice the cap on top was used because this tube was made to work at much higher voltages. Mm -hmm. uh, you would use 400 or 800 volt B supply on a tube like this to get enough power out of it to create a strong transmitter. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of transmitters used pairs of these. Unfortunately, this tube is dead. Uh, I can't, I, I tried to get it to show on the camera, but on the very top, you see these ceramic spacers uh -huh. that uh, are holding the internal elements. Yeah, yeah, yeah. On the top of the top one, there's supposed to be two little springs that hold the filament in tension. Okay. And I, I tried yet, uh, before I, I logged on, I can't get the camera to show them. But one of those springs is actually rattling around inside the envelope of the tube. It's uh -huh. not connected anymore. So the filament on this thing is, is either already uh, toast or is shorted out to something. And there's no way to fix but, something in a vacuum tube, right? Nope. Uh, it's fucked. The, on, the only exception to that is with very, very high power tubes like your 50,000 watt radio transmitter might use for your radio station. Those tubes are like this big and they're water cooled yeah, and was, there is a whole technology of taking them apart and re uh, reconditioning them but there's there are difficulties with that too yeah one of the big ones is 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 this the getter stuff yeah the silver stuff uh redoing that hard vacuum becomes a problem they yeah. one of the things they learned toward the end of the 1920s was before, you know, after they sucked the vacuum down, but before they sealed the tube, they would put this thing in an induction heater and heat the entire tube up to where it glowed red. And that was to drive gases out of the interior elements okay. so that it would okay. hold its vacuum. I mean, okay. it is yeah, pretty yeah. remarkable that this thing 
still has a vacuum after that's 90 insane. years. Yeah, that's insane. I mean, that's what that's they were, Yeah. That's what blows my mind more than anything. <laughs> yeah, that's what blows my mind more than anything is that they had goddamn vacuum tubes. Like that is to me yeah. that's crazier than a radio is that they figured yeah. out a fucking vacuum tube. Yeah. Well, and even that was there was a series of accidental discoveries and then uh, people figuring out why the accidental stuff worked a little more rigorously and then finding problems and working out ways to solve them by let's adding another element to the tube. Let's have an indirectly heated cathode. So the filament isn't the cathode anymore. It's just a heater that heats the real cathode. And that gives you some advantages because a filament isn't all at the same voltage because you have a voltage across it to make it hot. And the filament power supply also has to be at the same potential with the electronics as the electronic supply. Mm -hmm. So you can't like wire all the filaments in your radio in series, uh, like which became a common thing to do later. So there was things like that, the extra grids. There's a special tube called a pentagrid converter, which has five grids. And it was designed to be the mixer in a super heterodyne receiver. So it was designed to fulfill a special function in a particular circuit better than individual tubes could. So you had all this kind of stuff going on. Now, that was consumer. In the pure research, military, industrial, you had research going on into higher frequencies. Uh, In 1920, it was thought that the frequencies above three megahertz, what we call short waves, because they're shorter than the medium waves of broadcast radio, they were thought to be pretty useless because they didn't propagate reliably. And during the 20s, it was learned that they do, in fact, propagate reliably if you learn how the ionosphere works and that some propagate well at night, some propagate well at day, uh, some propagate well at dusk and and twilight uh, twilight and all. And they were working all that out, and that's where the whole shortwave thing came from. And and they went from being useless to being uh, a a bastion of long-distance communication. Most ship communications went from being long-wave to being shortwave because the equipment was smaller, the antennas were smaller, there was just more bandwidth available. Because <coughs> another thing they learned during the 20s is that when you modulate a radio signal, it spreads out. It actually takes a chunk of spectrum. It has sidebands. And the existence of sidebands was theorized, but it wasn't proven until the mid-20s. And sidebands limit the number of radio signals that can share a certain amount of spectrum. That's why spectrum is considered a valuable national resource nowadays. You know, when they have the FCC has a spectrum auction, Mm -hmm. that's what that's all about, because you can only put a certain number of radio signals in a chunk of spectrum Uh, space. uh, And so the the broadcast band only has room for about 100 channels, as it turns out. And as a practical matter, most receivers aren't good enough to receive two of them that are right next to one another. So they actually make an effort to make uh, stations that have adjacent channels distant from one another. Okay. So there are regions of the country that are literally designated for odd and even channel range assignments. Is that so? This was all done. This was all worked out in the 20s and 30s when they were doing There was a bunch of theoretical work behind it. Um, and at this point, so we're re, as we get into the 30s, 
they're realizing the shortwave is, is not only useful, it's real useful, and everyone wants to use it. And you've got the, the research, the pure researchers have moved to what they call the very high frequencies, VHF. VHF yeah. That's an acronym you've probably heard. Uh-huh. Yeah, Those start around yeah. 50 megahertz and go up to a couple hundred megahertz. And one of the first things they learned when they started messing around with VHF is that these phenolic bases that they were mounting the pins in, uh-huh. they start to conduct electricity. Uh-oh. The plastic starts to parasitically it's conduct electricity. So for, so for a few years, they made these. And that is a tube with a ceramic base. Okay. And because ceramic doesn't do that. Okay. Uh, these are rare. Um, if this tube was new in its original packaging, it would be worth at least $300. $300. As it is, if I tested it and uh, guaranteed its provenance as far as uh, working correctly, it would be worth around 100 Versus how but, much? Uh, how they much, only... What was its price Versus more viewing? like... If it had a phenolic, if it had a phenolic base, it would be worth about twenty. What was today's it? Market. What is it when it came out? It, is that what you're saying? Twenty. This is. Yeah. Well, uh, this is a model eight hundred one or its military designation VT sixty two. This was another common transmitting tube in uh, the the early thirties. But they didn't make ceramic bases for long because eventually they figured out how to make the pins come straight out the glass. And that solved the problem more effectively. They also found that it took time for the electrons to travel from the filament or the cathode to the plate. And it takes, they don't travel at the speed of light. They travel quite a bit slower. So the electrons start crawling away past the grid and then the signal reverses and then they, and, and, and so if at high frequencies, the electrons never make it. So the, t- the tube stops conducting electricity. So they started making them smaller. This is called a pencil tube because okay. it is the diameter of a pencil. Yeah. And these were these were made starting in 1940, and they're they're considered a very high quality product. Uh-huh. Uh, they have really they're really rugged they have really good longevity this one has never been installed as you can tell because it has pigtail leads uh, they're visible there uh-huh. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so this this tube wasn't designed to use a socket it was designed to be permanently mounted okay and soldered in place okay um and so it was a matter where you would have whatever assembly you made with these you would replace that instead of the tubes mm-hmm. they, they were considered that reliable that they were worth using in that way but these never made their way into consumer devices in any meaningful way they're they're too expensive mm-hmm. but what they were used for was very high frequencies uh i have a group of these that i pulled out of a vhf transmitter which saw service in vietnam and i bought it in the surplus market in the 1970s after the war ended and it was chock full of tubes like this and also this style, which is a little harder to show, but it has a flat base. Okay. And I think if I get it here, you can kind of see yeah, that yeah, it yeah. has I can, yeah, I can like see it. four or five pins. Yeah. Uh, and uh, the one place where I've seen this style of tube in a consumer device was in a hearing aid. Okay. That I was given by uh, one of my friends when I was young. 
Uh, and that amplifier was about the size of a pack of cigarettes. It had one of these tubes in it. Of course, you would wear it in your pocket, uh-huh. and it had a wire to the earpiece. But so in those days, pop. that's you know they didn't have electronics that you could stick actually stick in your ear. So that's how yeah. you did it. That's so like steampunk. And, Get your like your earpiece connected to your pocket. Yeah. <laughs> so so anyway, uh, moving toward World War Two, you had I, research into really high frequencies, uh, I, and so you good. had a brief flirtation with these guys. Um, this that? is called an acorn tube. When, when I was gonna say, don't don't rush through this. Like we're we, we're gonna have to do. <laughs> Because like, I still have time tonight, but I'll say don't rush through this because we can do a part two, five, ten. Let's do it thoroughly. Okay. I don't. I don't want you to rush through. I'm, I'm, I'm not even halfway through. Good. Don't rush. Yeah. Don't rush. We, don't rush through. Let's we, do it thoroughly. Yeah. Good. We, we got. The, we got a whole century to go. We through. got. We yeah. We got yeah. So, Podcast isn't going anywhere. Okay. okay. So so this is a this is called an acorn tube. Okay. And this was strictly an experimental research type thing. You'd never see these in consumer devices at all. Uh, they were used to do early microwave type research in radar, uh, what they called UHF then. Uh, mm-hmm. And one of the goals was not just to have teeny little elements. Uh, you can't see it. In fact, I can't see it with my own eyes, but uh, the plate of this thing is basically a flat sheet with a teeny little less than a millimeter wide bump in the middle and it's a triode in the middle of that bump there is a grid between the cathode and the plate Uh, i cannot conceive of how they manufacture things like this Uh, and they also keep the leads away from each other unlike normal tubes where they're all sticking out the bottom Uh uh, these are spaced apart so they won't couple to one another when they're installed in an assembly But again, they learned how to do better versions of, of stuff like this. I only have a couple of these, and uh, I would I will never build anything with one of them. I wouldn't begin to know how. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, that's closely related, though, to the what is probably the only tube left in your house. Um, you, you used to have two tubes in your house. Uh, one of them was on the front of that thing you used to watch movies and shows. Uh, the television set cathode because the cath- the cathode ray tube is a vacuum tube. Yeah. And uh, until about 2000, it was the only way known to display a picture in that way. 2000? And that's why you didn't have flat screen television sets. That's why? Uh, Jesus. So that, that, is, that is the reason. So I'm and old enough to, to be like, so I'm old enough to be, I was 10 when they had flat screens around. Yeah. Oh, Jesus. See, oh, Jesus. this is another style of – this is also a cathode ray tube. Okay. And it's a little more typical because this is from a small oscilloscope. So you have electrons – this is literally called an electron gun that fires a beam of high-speed electrons toward this phosphor face. And in a TV set, there's a magnetic yoke around it. In this one, there are electrostatic plates that you put voltage on that, that steer the beam. They can move it back and forth and up and down. And that's how it creates a raster and it modulates the, uh, electron beam strength to generate a weak dot or a bright dot. And using that, you can draw a picture on one of these. And that is how television worked until 
very recently. Jesus. So, um, and, and oh, and this thing, this thing wants a two thousand volt power supply mm-hmm. and enough current to kill you just as dead as an AR fifteen. So you do not wow. want to mess with these things if you don't know what you're doing. It's truly really a gun, yeah. <laughs> It'll kill yeah, you it's an electron. It's a gun. Yeah, It'll believe kill me. You. Yeah. Oh, you. and the and the, and the military guys have been having wet dreams about using something like that to shoot shit down for fifty years. SDI, so, space defense initiative yeah. or strategic defense initiative. Yeah, it was strategic. No, oh, yeah. Um, now World War Two comes along. And you have the same problem you did in World War One, which is people are shooting at you, uh, but you are more dependent on electronics than ever yeah. because communication is, is the backbone mm-hmm. of every military operation in World War Two. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we were familiar because of all of the uh, the romance around it with the code breaking and all, yeah, but just was, getting yeah. the signals from point A to point B was a big deal. Uh, that is when these guys showed up. And that is a metal jacket tube. Okay. This is physically, this is electrically the same. This is a 6SJ7. And this is the same tube that was also sold in a glass envelope. But you wouldn't see a metal tube like this in a consumer device. Yeah. Even though you might use it and it would work if you installed it. Because this tube costs twice as much to manufacture as a glass envelope tube. But where you see these... Uh, is in maritime equipment, military, uh, industrial stuff that's ex- is subjected to extremes. All during the 40s, uh, they were putting electronics in extreme situations uh, that had never been attempted before and learning how to do it and get away with it. And so that's where you came up with these miniature designs. Uh, that guy... Um, but it was a strange mix because you had a lot of research into fundamental principles, some of which, if they saw a reason, was immediately applied mm-hmm. into war devices. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you had new circuits being done for radar assemblies. Uh, the other tube that you have in your, you still have in your house, is the one in your microwave oven. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is a magnetron, and it is a special design tube. It's not a normal grid plate to design. It's something. There's a lot of math behind it, but they get the electrons whirling around in a, in a circle in this powerful magnetic field, and that generates high-frequency radio waves, and they use that to cook your food. Uh, that is still the state of the art for generating high-power microwave energy today. Um, so uh, if you ever junk a microwave oven, don't forget to take it apart because the magnets from a magnetron tube are rad. They mm-hmm. like are they are the best refrigerator magnets ever really they're they're donuts they're about that big in diameter and they stick to your refrigerator with good three or four pounds of force (laughs) (laughs) it's like those neobdium or how do you say it neobdium neobdium magnets yeah the thing about refrigerator magnets is they're not rare earth they're ceramic magnets but they are massive gnarly ceramic magnets so they're not as dangerous as the rare earth magnets i mean those things will put a hole in your hand those will blow your hand the magnetron yeah magnets, the the magnetron magnets won't do that but they will hold your shit on under the refrigerator like nothing else they will hold your shitty artwork there for years yes (laughs) so so we come out of world war ii 
and there's a, a big pent-up consumer demand and one of the things of course is radio sets rapidly get uh optimized and improved uh it was actually toward the end of the 30s that a design called the all-american five was invented which uses five vacuum tubes and it was optimized to the teeth to minimize the number of components uh all the filaments were in series so the tubes had to be special made for that design so that all their filament voltages would add up to 110 and they would all come on with the same curve so that one of them wouldn't hog all the voltage and burn itself out while the set was being turned on mm-hmm. uh, and there were a lot it, it, there was a tension about that design and in fact i own a radio from the 30s that was made by oh yeah united american bosch i have the schematic behind my computer here uh that company went out of business because the uh, owner refused to build the All-American 5. He said it was a shitty design. He wasn't going to put his name on something that cheap. And, and uh, that, you know, basically it was, they didn't have the word hack in 1935, but that yeah. was what he thought of it as. Yeah. But at the same time, he couldn't compete with yeah. his competitors that were making this cheap design and putting it in a nice cabinet and selling it in the same department store as him. So I have one of his last radios that's built with a chassis and a transformer and uh, construction very similar to what, how shortwave receivers were still made in the 40s and 50s. But consumer radios all pretty much became the same really kind of mediocre design. And it's one of those things, if you were working on radios in the 60s, uh, you you knew about this because no matter who made the radio, they all had almost exactly the same circuit, mm-hmm. the same capabilities. None were really substantially better than any others. Uh, and they all tended to fail the same way. So as a, as a service person, you were you didn't even need a schematic diagram to figure out what was wrong with one of them. They were all the same. Mm-hmm. So anyway, that's about where consumer electronics was, uh, except for television. Now, in the early 50s, television was right, it's about at the same point where radio was in the 1920s. There were a few experimental transmitters. There were uh, a few receiving devices available that were very expensive. There were, there were hobbyists who tried to roll their own. There were literally people who made television sets that could receive a television signal and display it on an oscilloscope tube because that's what you had available if you were an amateur. Yeah. And uh, the TV set, but the TV set is much more complicated than a radio. So what happened was tubes started proliferating. They started designing special tubes to do the particular functions that a TV set needed as efficiently as possible. So that was where last week, last week I showed you the horizontal deflector. Uh The fact there is a type of tube called a horizontal deflector tells you that is an entire class of tube. It was designed to do one thing and that was drive the horizontal magnetic yoke in a television set. So, uh, so there were other tubes that were designed to be the power amplifier. There were, there were hybrid tubes that were designed to do some of the tuning and inter- intermediate frequency functions to extract the signal. And by the late, uh, by the, by the, by the mid to late fifties, the design of TV sets had more or less standardized to where, uh, they mostly all had a similar mix of components and uh they cost about the same which was uh 
probably about what you would pay for uh, a, a decent used car for a 19-inch uh, television set. Um, and that was before color. Jesus Christ. And it, and it followed the progression that radio had, which is you had the early adopters, and they would invite their friends to come sit around and watch TV. Most cities might have one TV station. And unlike radio, TV signals really don't go over the horizon. So yeah. if you lived in a city that didn't have a TV station, you couldn't even buy a TV. No one would bother trying to sell you one. But once you had a TV station, the early adopters would come in. Even if there was only one TV station, they, they would buy a TV so that they could say, I have a television set. And that would get their neighbors interested. And then someone would start another station. Now, back in the radio days, I, w I mentioned the networks. Yeah, yeah. The first yeah. radio network. Yeah, the first radio network was the Columbia Broadcasting System, and uh, NBC and, and, uh, and ABC were formed uh, a little after, about the same time, and they each uh, put up their own set of relay stations to distribute content because they all had the same problem. Audio recording didn't come into its own until after World War II. In fact, practical audio recording was invented by the Germans during the war. We didn't have access to it until the war was completely over. If, if you've ever watched an episode of Hogan's Heroes, you might notice that every once in a while they pull out a wire recorder that, that, can, re, that, that can play back an audio spool of wire. Um, oh. And that was the state of the art at the beginning of World War II. Oh. And it didn't work very well. Uh, the wire was noisy. It was difficult to erase properly. Uh, basically, they were single use unless you did some fancy shit. Uh, they were hard to thread and use. Uh, it was just uh, it was a, totally an experimental thing that was not suited to commercial or much less consumer use. Mm -hmm. And it was during the war that some German researchers figured out how to deposit magnetic oxides on flat tape and that this worked a lot better. And uh they uh, designed better read and recording heads. Uh, and when the war ended, uh, we got access to this technology. And within a few years, that started to be the basis of uh, time shifting, not so much for consumers as for networks. So you could have a newscast that was broadcast on the East Coast and record yeah. it yeah. and play it at a more reasonable time for the people on the West Coast. That was impossible before World War II. The technology didn't exist. Fucking Nazis. So, yeah, we, we, we owe tape recording to them. You, you hate to admit it, but Operation Paperclip, you hate to admit it. It's a great book, so, by the way. Operation it, Paperclip by Annie Jacobson. Yeah. I think you would like yeah, it. Yeah, I'm, I'm familiar with the story. Yeah. I it, haven't read the actual the, book. The book, it, it, it goes... Rockets were just they that was just what everyone knows about. We got everything. We got all sorts oh, yeah. of shit from them. Well, in order to make the rockets work, they had to do a lot of other stuff. And that's where I'm I'm familiar with some of that too. Yeah. Um the the whole the, the reason that rocket science became slang for something only really smart people understood was that they had invented so many new things, a lot of them involving really advanced math. Uh, yeah. particularly guidance systems yeah, just to bounce that fucking uh, explosion just to go straight up yeah 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 well it actually was to go straight up and then come down in a particular place maybe, uh, maybe which it london mostly did most just throw it at but, a random place maybe london yeah I don't know. and of course uh von braun had this uh, 
deeper uh, goal of, of exploring space and actually drew designs for more advanced rockets that when after the war was done, he was hoping that they would be able to pursue. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, of course, Operation Paperclip got him. He came here and moved to Atlanta. Um, but, yeah, that was why his uh, biography was often mockingly called I Aim for the Stars, but sometimes, sometimes I Hit London. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, yeah. It's <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> Fucking fun, uh, Von so so anyway, <laughs> in, ni- in 1950, television was at about the same place that radio had been in 1920. It was impossible to record a television signal. So if you had one of those early television stations, all of your programming was either live or it was broadcast from uh, from film, from actual photographic film movies. Mm-hmm. And it took them about five minutes after television was invented to invent a way to broadcast 24-frame movies over the 30-, 60-frame TV system. Mm-hmm. And that was the basis. All of your early TV shows were shot on film because there was no uh, video recording. And when video recording was invented in the late 50s, it was very difficult to edit because you had different heads doing different things. So if you wanted to cut the tape – and splice in something else that just it wasn't a possible thing so uh again what they mostly used videotape for when ampex uh made it work was for time shifting the newscasts and stuff like that so they would broadcast a, uh, a show maybe a live action show like a sitcom that's uh, filmed before a studio audience uh they would simply record the whole thing in one go and then they could play it back for the people in the west coast after they had finished eating dinner and whatnot but that was what drove the next wave of uh, of interaction was they figured out how to hack color into the NTSC television signal, which is one of the great hacks of all time, making a color signal that a black and white TV would receive and display properly was something a lot of people didn't think was possible. And it involves some gnarly compromises. Yeah. Um, I, I've had to take a dive into the, the NTSC signal because I actually use a microprocessor uh, called the Parallax Propeller that has special circuitry in it that's designed to generate video signals from software. Mm-hmm. So it can bit bang video. But to do NTSC video is like, man, there is some crap involved with that stuff. And then God help you if you're from Britain because PAL is completely different. So every country came up with their own standard and they're all, none of them are remotely compatible with one another. They all have different limitations. And because we were first, we had the crappiest TV signals on the planet because we had designed our system first and then everyone else came along and saw what was wrong with it and made improvements. So the British, the British system does color better. The Japanese system has more lines and uh, higher resolution. Mm. And so everybody's TV looked better than ours because we invented it. God damn it. God damn it. At least, at least until digital. Yeah. So when, so if we're getting into video that, I mean, it just raises the natural, because it's like, there's always the first thing that happens with this new technology, right? And the first thing is always, how do we put it into war? How do we make it so we can kill the people that look differently, different than us, right? <laughs> right? That's the first thing. What's the second thing? How do we use it to 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 do sex? So when was the first pornography? <laughs> That's always the first two. Is It's kill everyone else, yeah. and how do we fuck their wives? That's always the progression of technology. Yeah. Fire. TV. Kill, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh television was actually 
kind of unique in that it does that backward. Uh, television became possible mainly because of te- unrelated, uh, well, technological advancements that were made for unrelated reasons during the war. So all these high-frequency transmitters that you needed and high-powered, high-frequency uh, tubes and the uh, the mixer tubes that you needed and all, all of the specialty hardware was there to be adapted into something that became relatively easy to manufacture. Uh, it, rather than doing it all up, it would have been way too much of an investment for any private company to come up with all of the stuff necessary to do television. Um, now, as for pornography, uh, that was that started on film. Yeah. Seriously. Yeah. And uh, the uh, as far as uh, well, we're step- getting a little ahead of the other story here, but uh, porn was all film. Uh, specialty porn was sold on 16-millimeter reels, and you would have to have a projector to watch it. Mm-hmm. Then in the 70s, you had what they call the golden age of porn because you had people making 35-millimeter print movies with a crew. A lot of those crew members that worked on porn movies actually went into regular Hollywood later using their experience because you had to know how to work the equipment. It was all the same stuff used to make professional movies. And when video came along, the first thing they did was they took all of those film movies and videotaped them and sold videotapes. But then they started using videotape to film the porn directly and it got cheaper Uh, and the standards got lower and... And that's now, before even the internet came along and, and now you have the computer video. yeah and now you have those perverse corners of the internet where where anything yeah. goes just actually you you had them but a lot of them got uh struck down that's another story sometime i'll have to tell you about that, insects that, um the what? But, but getting 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 back to radio that's another episode okay. yeah that's another episode yeah oh that's a story that's yeah that that, that is yeah. That is a beautifully perverse, wonderfully perverse story. Oh. Um, so, uh, but but getting back to te- to television, as, yeah. as we approach the '60s, uh, the driving force behind consumer electronics becomes television, and uh, what they called hi-fi, you know, high fidelity uh, audio recording uh, record albums were standardized during the. Uh, re- the albums, the first standard albums were done in the '30s, but they were '78s. And they would only play one song. So they were like a 45 was later, but they were this big. And uh, they miniaturized right, the, the recordings. Then they came out with the slower turning ones that could play more sound. And there was a whole evolution of that stuff in the 50s and 60s that ended up where we are today with the 33 RPM uh, record that could play about half an hour to 45 minutes on a side. Mm-hmm. Um, then transistors were invented. And the first transistors were invented in the late 50s. And what immediately happened was almost nothing. Uh, I happen to have this. This is really hard to show. But this is a fairly early model transistor. And I don't know if you can see that that little kind of flattish metal case. Uh, This puppy would have cost more than a vacuum tube when it was new uh, and did a lot less. Uh, these things are very fragile. Uh, you could take one of these tubes. I, I, I was involved with people who tuned their transmitters wrong and had the plates of these tubes glowing orange. 
but the tube survived. They, 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 they've throttled it down, figured out the problem. All you do that with a transistor and the smoke comes out. Mm -hmm. Plus this transistor might've cost twice as much as one of these type 30 vacuum tubes in 1957. Mm -hmm. Now, that wasn't very attractive for consumer devices because you had this very mature technology. Uh, but where you did see it was computers mm. because uh, these things also were very crappy. They had very crappy audio quality. They're not very linear. They have very poor response when you go off the ends of their curves. Um, basically, they're finicky. They're hard to work with, and they don't work very well even when they're working. But when you build a computer, all you need the damn thing to do is to act like a switch. Mm -hmm. You want it to either come on and conduct or go off and not conduct. Nothing mm -hmm. in between matters. Mm -hmm. So these crappy early transistors were just fine for the computer industry. And you got to remember that when you were building a computer in the 50s, you might have 20,000 of these miniature vacuum tubes. And... These things have a mean time between failures of ten to $20,000. If you do that math, it basically means you have to have elaborate circuitry to detect a failure and a service technician on site all the time to fix the thing when one of these needs to be replaced or anything else fails. They were doing really elaborate stuff with mercury delay lines for memory, and those would get out of calibration. Early computers were just monstrous devices. Yeah. And that led to one of the more famous uh, dumb things smart people say quotes of all time. Alan Turing uh, and uh, John von Neumann are basically the two people that I yeah. would personally credit with inventing the computer. Yeah, Turing built the first one in, in uh in Britain to uh, to solve the Turing, um, the, the Enigma yeah. codes, yeah. and von Neumann Any built act. the first one in the United States to uh, see if they could build a hydrogen bomb by yeah. doing the hydrodynamic calculations. Yeah. And von Neumann famously told a magazine reporter that computers were amazing, wonderful devices that made uh, almost superhuman feats possible, but that they were so elaborate and expensive that there would almost certainly never be more than ten of them in the entire world. Needless to say, that came back to bite him. <laughs> and yeah, he because he in Richard Rhodes's Dark Sun, a book about the hydrogen bomb, they talk about mm -hmm. talks about von Neumann. Yeah, and von Neumann was like, yes, he's like these are. He, cool. he was real yeah. tight. With, he was real tight with Ed Teller yeah, and uh, uh, Stanley Ulam. Yeah, and von Neumann apparently was like, this is crazy. He's like, you know, he was like some of these computers. He's like, I mean, these might have up to like sixty kilobytes of memory. And people are like bullshit and he was like yeah <laughs> they're like my god sir you get you to the pentagon <laughs> yeah and he did so anyway, yeah so so anyway these early transistors were very attractive to the computer industry because when you're talking about something that big you're spending millions of dollars on it you're spending hundreds of thousands of dollars a year to keep it in operation and for that the difference between well-designed mature vacuum tubes and crappy early transistors still massively favored the transistors. And so the early computer industry sucked up the entire world supply of transistors for many years, except for one application, and that was portable radios. Mm -hmm. for portable radios, 
the fact that the audio quality was crap didn't matter. What mattered was battery life and lightweight. So you could take it to the beach and play it all day on a set of batteries. For that, vacuum tubes didn't cut it. So the transistor radio became the transistor device that you might own as a consumer individual. Mm. Not for set-top radios. Those stayed vacuum tube until the late 60s. Not for... Uh, phonographs, not for television sets. There was no reason to use a transistor in any of those things. Because once you have said, well, I need to use vacuum tubes anyway for the final output to get enough power or for the preamp because it's got to be linear and the transistors aren't good enough, then it doesn't make sense to use transistors for anything because then you've just got a whole separate power supply form, a whole separate set of engineering problems. The only exception that I can uh, think of to that were in the early 70s, portable TV sets started to use transistors for some of their circuitry. And again, it was portability. So even though you couldn't get rid of all the tubes, you could get rid of the low-powered ones and still make a 12-inch TV set that a a teenager could carry around, Mm -hmm. as I know because I had one of them. It had like three tubes plus the picture tube and a little circuit board full of transistors. And it was expensive because transistors were still a premium uh, item. Mm-hmm. So you had that going on. So, so transistors didn't really change consumer electronics very much except for this one new product uh, that the kids took to the beach. And you'll notice they weren't playing Mozart on those things. They were playing rock and roll. So they didn't care if there was harmonics being introduced and the audio quality yeah. wasn't perfect. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so you had that. Um, uh, all right. So let's see where I just, I just had one of those brain farts because I knew where I was going with the story next. Transist- and just, trans- transistors, yeah. portable uh, radios, batteries. So, um, so any act von, uh, von Neumann. Yeah. You had computers. 20, oh, videotape. 20,000 things in one room. Yeah. In, in the fifties, they finally learned to record video signals which if you recall after the war that was one of the big things with audio was being able to record and play it back sure. uh the problem with video is that it's very high frequency so the the tape uh, has to move super fast you know in, on audio recording the faster the tape moves the higher the fidelity so on the old like quarter inch audio decks there would be a selector for the tape speed you could set it to a high tape speed which would give you good quality but the tape wouldn't last very long or you could set it for a low tape speed, which gave you a crappy quality, but you could record for a longer period of time. Yeah. Well, television required, you know, RCA, uh, the engineers wanted to give David Sarnoff a birthday present. They wanted to give him a video recorder. They wanted to, to invent video recording. And as one of the books that I read on it said, by the time Ampex actually solved the problem, RCA's uh demo was going the speed of sound they actually had to you wear leather gloves to stop the tape when they wanted to stop it it was moving so fast but what ampex discovered was that they could take a wide tape and spin the head to make a helical Uh track that would go in a pattern like that and the the head would then be moving fast enough to record the video signal with enough fidelity to play it back and they invented this in the mid-50s. But Ampex was an American company. They 
were totally devoted to vacuum tube manufacture. In fact, uh, I read a story that said engineers at Ampex had little plates on their desk, uh, little signs that had helped stamp out transistors. Uh, so an Ampex video recorder was an installation. It was the size of a desk full of electronics. And if you were a TV station, though, it was worth its weight in plutonium. Sure. They, you know, yeah. Because you could, but it was, but you couldn't take it in the field. You couldn't do, you know, like take it on the set of a TV series to sure. film with it. Uh, it was something you would have as a studio tool. Walter Cronkite shit, right? And and also there were pro there were there were problems like a lot of the Ampex recorders wouldn't play a tape that was made by another Ampex recorder. They could play their own tapes, but if you brought one in from another studio that was made on a different recorder, sometimes they wouldn't play because of little differences in how they were aligned and all. And uh, and Ampex wasn't really interested in fixing this because they had a patent and they were the only source for this thing. Does that sound familiar? This has been the case a couple of times down the road. Well. The Japanese were watching over their shoulders, and the Japanese were not afraid of transistors. So one fine day, the Japanese uh, managed to enter the market, got over the patent thing and all, and they took this desk and shrunk it to where it would fit in a suitcase. So it became portable. Hmm. And then they developed cassette loading mechanisms, and they fixed the problem where one player wouldn't record, wouldn't play what another had recorded, and they basically ground Ampex into the ground. Mm -hmm. the The American company that invented uh, video recording went out of business because of Sony. Jesus. <laughs> Jesus. Hey man, live yeah. by the sword, die by the sword. The Nazis invented the rockets, and we were like, "Get over here, bitch! It's ours." As the Reich falls. Yeah comes around again yeah tvs yeah. the rest but of the world also, is like ours they also invented audio recording and so we invented video recording and then the japanese took it from us circle, because we didn't have any companies that were willing to do it the circle of life yeah and then china had the most covid deaths and we are like fuck that we're gonna take it so <laughs> yeah we're not we're number one. number one number one doesn't matter what it's for bitch we're number one nuclear arsenals number one covid deaths number one yeah we'll take it all it's that but i was gonna say what a beautiful analogy for like you know it's the the faster the tape spins the the shorter the lifespan but the better the fidelity like what a beautiful analogy that is to like rock stars though right it's like live fast yeah the 27 club Jimi hendrix mac miller amy winehouse was avici i think it's yeah you're you're at you're in and out 27 kurt cobain yeah high fidelity but it's it's done before it's but, yeah. yeah the can candle that burns brightest burns fastest it's, it's a beautiful it's but, a beautiful but, analogy but that used to be a thing everybody was familiar with because when tape recorders became consumer items my dad had a quarter inch reel to reel that i inherited had beautiful vacuum tube sound um but yeah, you had that speed selector, and that was always an item. Do I do, do 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 I set that sucker for fast and have it sound good, or do I set it for slow and use half as much tape? That was you know, especially when you're paying seven bucks for a, a reel of tape like this, and it only lasts fifteen minutes at the fast speed, and this was seven bucks in nineteen sixty. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah. But that, that's what um, I do with my video right now. Uploading it, I upload to YouTube, BitChute, DTube, Vo. And it's like some other, just so I, I diversify, just so one of the companies can't, you know, mm -hmm. sh shut me out because of wrong think. 
well youtube has it's obviously the biggest and has the the most access it's free i upload the high def high quality high audio fidelity to all those bitshoot dtube and vo i upload the like video file put on youtube seven to ten gigabytes per episode those other ones i do they're all under 500 megabytes and yeah it's it's i have limited time i have you know i have the internet that i have i don't have fiber i don't have satellite internet it's kind of the same right it's the same what do i want where am i going what am i yeah, what game actually, am I playing? actually mathematically it's identical because the problem is that you're paying you know the, the reason that the tape at the faster speed records a higher fidelity is that there are more magnetic particles per unit of time there to capture the finer variations in the audio mm. and the, the same thing is when you devote more disk space to a, a file then there's literally more bits there to devote to the fine shadings of video between from frame to frame and from the fine changes in the audio stream and even with all the compression that we do you still have that trade-off at the end it is it um, absolutely is. it's a it's a 10 it's a 10x magnitude often for me now yeah i honestly the uh coming from my perspective okay uh as far as computers and multimedia so when i started using computers i've mentioned this in our earlier talks they were stupid they were really really stupid and the idea that you could use a computer to listen to audio was just like that that yeah that, that's like taking uh a Porsche and using it to pull your boat. It's just like, nobody's going to do that. You know, it's just not what it's for. And, uh, and I was to this day, I remember my sense of astonishment. I got a computer in 2003 because I had to make a couple of trips to, to Mexico and I wanted to have a computer with me that I could use to get on the internet and take notes and stuff. So I bought the smallest portable computer I could find at the time, which was a 10 inch and it had an optical drive and i remember bringing it home because all i was really interested in using it for was surfing the web or actually getting on the internet at that time wasn't synonymous with surfing the web there were other things uh, and uh you know using the word processor and stuff and i got home and found out that that player was a dvd player it could play a video and i'm like get out of here what the fuck i, I was like no shit? i don't it's, that's that's bullshit, right so i went got one of my dvds put it in there it player comes up god damn it god like, damn it welcome to the future bitch <laughs> <laughs> you're right <laughs> and uh but 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 it's that's been another progression as as computers people don't realize how far computers have come uh when the mp3 compression standard was first invented in the early 90s a typical computer could not record an MP3 and encode it in real time. You would record your five minute song in wave format, which might take 50 megabytes. And at that time, a hundred megabyte hard drive was a big thing. Yeah. So this was, this was a hobby. So you would record your, your audio in wave format, and then you would set the encoder to encoding it. And you would come back a couple hours later. And it would finally have encoded your five minute long song because of the computational resources that are necessary. It's doing a Fourier transform, which is basically a very complex mathematical operation to figure out what frequencies are present at what energies in the audio signal. And so recording of uh, the MP3 requires doing all of these Fourier transforms, which are like 
in the 80s, that was like the benchmark of computer performance was how long does it take to do a Fourier transform? That was like one of the hard problems that computers don't do well. And to make an MP3 file, you had to do tens of thousands of Fourier transforms per second. So as computers got faster, that got more and more practical but playing it back was a different story because to play it back all you had to do was read that list of frequencies and reconstruct them so you would have uh, a bunch of virtual oscillators and you would read this list of frequencies and set all your oscillators up for the right amount of energy and then you would read the next time slice and do the same thing and that was something computers could do even in the early 90s Mm -hmm. so that was the thing. It was not really until almost the year 2000 that ordinary desktop computers could record an MP3 in real time. That that was one of the things. The, the fact that we have handheld MP3 recorders now, that wasn't possible until the mid-aughts because you're not only asking a computer that you can buy and isn't a mainframe computer to do it, you're asking something battery-powered that you can hold in your hand to do all these calculations. Mm. And of course, now we're used to our phones being able to play video, but that that was also a thing that used to be considered laughable. Yeah. And now we completely take it for granted. Yeah. It's so. I mean, uh, flat, you know, flat television screens were a holy grail of the electronics industry for over fifty years. No one had any idea how to make one. <laughs> Big flat yeah. screen, four K. Actually, when uh. When, uh, when I was uh, holding my tubes up to the camera before we got online, uh, I noticed that there was a weird blue reflection on some of them, and I was trying to figure out where it was coming from, and I realized it's from this 32-inch 4K monitor over here <laughs> that uh, was displaying a blue desktop pattern. Jeez. So I uh, had to put up an application with a black background yeah. and maximize it to get rid of the reflection. That's... But no one knew how to do that and the first the the first technology that anyone ever thought of was plasma and plasma is kind of closely related to to how crts work but it turned out not to be practical first it was very expensive to manufacture and then it turned out that plasma screens burn at like five times the rate crts do where if you show the same image for a long period of time when you turn it off that image is still there that, plasma sets do that like five times faster than cathode ray tubes that, so whenever uh, but then uh, I was but then s- they invented i was gonna say playing video games like the sniper the sniper scope i've burned that on the tvs before and been like oh no well that's one of the things lcds don't do fortunately but in order to make LCD panels this size work, they had to figure out how to actually embed transistors into the panel for each pixel of the LCD to get enough uh, electrical signal to each pixel to uh, to get that change in brightness. And that was a thing uh, because all through the 80s and 90s, they were working on new ways to fabricate transistors, new ways to fabricate other devices, uh, LEDs. For years, a blue LED was the holy grail of the electronics industry. Mm. Uh, By 1960, they had red LEDs, 
and they had uh, green LEDs. And if you use both of them at the same time, you could get yellow light. Mm -hmm. But if you could get a blue LED, then you could make any color. You could make white light. Mm -hmm. And LEDs could change brightness very fast, unlike light bulbs. So you could make very small picture elements and you could change them very fast and you could make a television set if you could get a blue LED. Generate, they worked on it. It was like the holy grail through the 80s and the 90s. And it wasn't until after the year 2000 that the guy in Japan finally solved the problem. And he did it by leapfrogging everyone else. Because when you're looking to do a thing like generate light from a diode, there are certain chemicals that are attractive and you know that you know already work or that are related to the ones that already work because they're in the right column of the periodic table and uh, they have various electrovalence numbers and magic hopscotch like that. So there were two chemistries that were considered to be promising for short wavelength LEDs one of which was fairly convenient to work with. And so it's the one everybody was using. And the other of which was highly toxic and corrosive and just an absolute nightmare to deal with in the lab. So this one guy in Japan decided, well, everyone else is going with the easy shit and it's not working. Let's see what we can do with the hard shit. Mm -hmm. And he had to invent his own glassware, making shit out of quartz to, you know, because these chemicals are so corrosive. But in the end, what he got wasn't a blue LED. He got an ultraviolet LED. So he actually leapfrogged their goal. And so now, nowadays, all of these high performance LEDs that didn't even exist 15 years ago, this, this whole ecosystem that has, I mean, I can tell you, if you went back to 2005 and found any engineer and told them, oh, yeah, man, I'm from 20. By the way, don't go to 2020. It's a mess. But in 2020, we can go into into the convenience store and buy this light bulb that has actually got a circuit board and a ring of LEDs in it. And we plug it in where we used to put an incandescent light bulb and it works better. They would look at you like. Pull the other one. Yeah, yeah seriously, yeah. right? No, yeah. LEDs can't do that. Yeah. The idea that we're using LEDs for area illumination is like mind-blowing. Yeah. And and we've only been doing it for 10 years. Now everybody takes it for granted. It's yeah. like uh, – but but what a lot of people don't, uh, don't know is that you know, for all those years, we thought the secret to a white LED would be the blue LED. So you could put red, green, and blue in the same package and get a white light. That is how they do it for color changing LEDs, like those Christmas lights and all that can change color and make any color. But if you buy a, a, a white LED light bulb, there's no blue, red, and green in it. What they do is they take the ultraviolet light and shine it on phosphors, and they phosphoresce and they absorb the ultraviolet light and they re emit it in whatever colors humans can see we want. So they, they use the same ultraviolet LEDs to make soft white, warm, different colors, whatever, by using different phosphors. And uh, a lot of the improvements that have been made in the last five or ten years have been in phosphor technology. So the LEDs, they've improved too, but there's this whole inter- interlocking set of technologies that have just been galloping together into capabilities that would have been considered ridiculous. They just installed a bunch of street lights on the Lake Pontchartrain Causeway that are LEDs for street lights. I mean, it's like they're bright enough 
to be freaking streetlights. And it was, it was like, no, this is the thing that you have on the front of your radio to let you know that it's on. Yeah. <laughs> you don't, you yeah. don't light up the damn street with it. Yeah, it's, I mean, goddamn. I mean, like, I was just like, I'm, it's one thing I was, I have to keep them in something just because they're so small. But you want to finish this up at 7.30 my time and we can resume, we can resume next week. Sure. Because I haven't eaten today. I need to get some dinner. Yeah, because <laughs> yeah, I've about I've about done my uh, my show with these guys now. There's a couple of them that I... Oh, here's a little... Yeah, I, I thought this guy was just kind of hilarious. That's uh, three triodes in one envelope. That was obviously done for some specific purpose and some device that they wanted to minimize the component count. And so there's a whole variety of two that's... These this combination of elements was useful to them. It's yeah, just one thing I was thinking. Before there was integrated circuits, integrated vacuum tubes. A hundred and twenty-eight gigs. Uh huh. And, and oh yes. And I got this in twenty seventeen. This isn't even new. This is three years old. Mm hmm. I mean, it's just look look at it. Hundred and twenty-eight yes. gigs. Holy fuck! And that's that's gigabytes, which Gigab tells yeah, you yeah. that there are a thousand gigabits. Yeah, or, which is what an add an addo bit. It's like yeah the, but they're really dinky. Five terabytes. <laughs> I mean, that's insane. It's, and this isn't even top of the line shit. This is like bargain yeah. bin. Yeah. My my first hard drive was 10 megabytes. And it was in an enclosure about a foot wide, a foot deep, and four inches high. With its own power supply and all. Own power supply? And man, people thought, people thought that was rocking, man. 10 terabytes. Mm -hmm. Hundred and nine dollars. Yeah, just nothing. Just yeah, there's just an extra no. ten thousand gigs. <laughs> yeah, but man, it's surprising how fast you can eat that when you're recording four K movies now, isn't it? Uh huh. <laughs> I, I but I, yeah, I, I put away about forty gigs per episode because I, I I save the main file that I break everything off of. So like the low fidelity shit, the ones I upload to YouTube, I have like, it's like kind of like prime intellect. I have like the prime file <laughs> and I just, everything else I sort of shave off of it, but I keep yeah. the prime. So, you know, yeah. in the future I can come back and I still have this like 4k screen recording that I don't need right yeah. now. I couldn't possibly upload in any sort of timely manner, but I, I keep it just for the future. Yeah. Well, it, it gives you a better basis if you start editing or you need to do something. You're, it reduces your losses. Yeah, I just keep the big boy. I just keep keep the, the yeah. prime file. They run about. It, it shows yeah. your video. Your videos do look good. I oh. mean, you know, especially oh. considering I know you don't do a lot of post processing on them, so uh, you're doing something right. Woo! Thank you. But yeah, it's I just I keep I keep the primary file, and uh, but yeah, it's about forty gigs an episode. Push about two hundred a two hundred a week. It's. I thought, I thought you would like it. So, I dropped yeah. that big one last week. 
and it started fucking up and I was like, oh no. So I so I ordered I ordered um I ordered some like heavy duty ones just to back everything up. Only four terabytes, it's yeah. big. Shockproof, waterproof, dustproof, throw it yeah. across the room. But um The thing you got the thing you gotta watch for, uh is particularly avoid is shocking them while they're spinning. Yeah. They they they're pretty they're pretty rugged if they're not spinning. Yeah. You know they can you can drop them a few feet and and they will, they'll usually be okay. But if you drop one of those puppies when it's spinning and the heads are out, uh, it'll 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 just dig canals in the magnetic medium and it's you just, can it's just fucked. Just just go ahead and throw it away. Yeah, it's fucked. But I thought about Metamorphosis of Prime Intellect, and where <laughs> did you put the copies? Intergalactic space, and yeah. So I have I have several hard drives, but I got these heavy fucking duty ones, just as like I'm keeping them as copies, and uh, mm -hmm. I got this. It's called a dark bag, and it's for uh, a. <laughs> it's a Faraday cage bag, and then I got always worthwhile. Yeah, and then I got a fireproof, waterproof bag that I keep it in. <laughs> Nested levels of protection. That yeah, and on its way is a safe. So, yeah. just a little uh, one, size of a microwave. I don't know if I mentioned it. One, th one thing you will appreciate about Prime Intellect is that one of the things I was a little worried about when I finally got around to writing it was that the scale of the enterprise that Lawrence needed Chip Tech to create for him uh, was not really as believable as it had been when I had the idea. Because the, you know, the idea originally was that Lawrence is very dependent on this industrial company yeah. this massive investment in order to realize his dream and even in 1994 i was starting to realize that you might not need that much of a massive investment to make it real so uh when i first had the idea uh in 1982 i decided that the change occurred in 1988 uh which would have uh been you know, in the future at the time, but not too far. Yeah. But when I wrote it in 1994, I thought about it a bit, uh, not so much when I wrote chapter one, but when I got back to write chapter two mm -hmm. and I was thinking about, well, is this massive complex really necessary? Is, you know, it, it is, is, uh, the tech, the technical guys and the business guys luring him with this and the military guys, does this really make any sense if computers aren't that, uh, resource intensive to make one this big. Yeah. So I decided that the it's not a big deal in the story. There are a few subtle cues, even in Mopey, that the change occurs in 1988. The president who resigns is Ronald Reagan. Yeah. And I don't make a big deal about that, but there are a couple of cues in, in some of the background yeah. that it's not the modern world that these people yeah. uh, overrode. Uh, so this is a world where 9-11 never happened, Hurricane Katrina never happened, yeah. obviously COVID-19 never happened. Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, it was also a world where the Cold War was still, if not hot, still a big topic. You know, I think yeah. uh, it, it's, it's sort of up in the air whether the Berlin Wall had fallen at the time when prime and elected does the change but whether it had or hadn't then you still had a lot of that sensibility floating around the animosity between yeah. the, the former nation states and these people who were experiencing the change and uh, going into this new world would be coming from that perspective so that's also the whole thing with the regional conflicts that are being interrupted because prime and elect is, is is turning all the weapons into flowers and shit like that um 
you know, it, it, it's like that's that world. And it's significantly different than today's world. But I didn't want the technology to be uh, a big bug. So in the sequel, that'll be a little more obvious. I'm still not going to make a big deal of it being a period piece. But one of the things that I told the guys that optioned it, that optioned it was my view of it is that the parts that are set before the change are a 1980s era period piece because otherwise the technology starts making less and less sense. Yeah. I mean, we are almost at the point today where you could put a computer on your desktop that is as powerful as the prime intellect complex. Yeah. And you don't need them to have speed of light processors because the thing is so small. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, that was a thing. If your computer's the size of a warehouse, having things 300 feet apart becomes yeah. a problem with the speed of light. But if it's a microprocessor and it's that big, it's not that big of a deal. Yeah. So, uh, but, but it's like the, you know, the big deal that is made about prime intellect being able to do real time video and render a face. And it's like, your fucking iPhone can do that today. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, but I, I think as long as it's understood what period it's in, I think the weight will hold the same. Like 2001 A Space Odyssey, like as long as you know when it is. Yeah. Or at least when it was written. Yeah. It, to me, that it, it still makes the story awesome. Yeah. I don't Yeah. yeah. I, don't I mean, it, I didn't I didn't want it to be in everyone's face. Yeah. But I also didn't want it to be obviously in a modern era where it didn't make any sense either. Yeah. So it's as much about things that I don't mention. That, yeah. Because they don't exist because, in that universe yeah. as things that I do. Yeah. Well, you don't, yeah, you're right. You don't, there's not a really a whole lot of, or if any specific dates in it. I don't know. I never thought about who yeah. was president. You said Reagan, but I get, as soon as you said that, I started thinking, I didn't even realize it, but subconsciously I had put George H.W. Bush in that position when you said around yeah. noon he retired or resigned. Yeah. I, I just put H.W. Yeah. without even thinking about it. It depends on when in 1988 it was. Yeah, so, I just, yeah. I, yeah. Actually, H.W. didn't get inaugurated until 89. Yeah. And in my, my head canon is that it's 88, so it would have been toward the end of Reagan's second term. He yeah. might have already – it might have been even after the yeah. election. Lame duck, but, yeah. Uh, the, the main thing is that and, – and Reagan is also a, a person I could actually see doing that because he he is a trained actor. Yeah. I mean the, in a certain sense, he was paid to play the president for eight years yes. and did it professionally. And he knew that he wasn't was like actually anymore. making all these decisions. He yeah. was the face of the presidency. Yeah. Um, and so I can see him going, guys, the gig is up. Yeah, it's, the, we had a good know, run. The show is over. We had a good run. <laughs> we did good. All right, we yeah. we got us but, to Nirvana. But, we got us to Nirvana. We did our job. We got yeah. to Nirvana. It's and, yeah, and, and, and the show keys. is over. There's nothing more for me to do. It's like stage curtain comes down. Yeah, he would see it that way because of being uh, show business. Just, uh, yeah, present, you know that was his yeah. his background. Designed uh, at noon. HW would have probably been a little more reluctant because his background, you know, he came out of the CIA, CIA. and the he uh, the intelligence he uh, made sure, agencies and yeah. all. he would have made sure the scarecrow call went through. He wouldn't have liked yeah. that. He would have been like, or, fire the nukes, the B-83. At the very least, he would have stuck around to make to, to make sure he knew why. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Reagan is very much, when you kind of look around, yeah. oh, you know, guess that's it. <laughs> you know? Yeah. That, so know? That's, that's kind of my take yeah. on that. Kind of maybe messes up the hair, takes off the coat, and he's like, you know, kind of that gig is over. Like he's walk White House is the set. Yeah. He's walking and off the, set. And the, others, and the other guys are going, no, Mr. Reagan, we got it. And he's just like. 
what? You guys, what, guys, what are done. we doing now? It's done. I'm <laughs> going to LA. I'm out of here. We did it. It was fun. Yeah. We beat we beat the Rus yeah. we beat the Russians kind of sort of not really whatever we're finished. <laughs> it's, yeah. It's, well, did kind of. Yeah. But, yeah. So anyway, that uh, so that was a thing I didn't recall whether I had mentioned it that I thought you might appreciate. Yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah, the, 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 but that's a, a whole thing about all, all the stuff I've been talking about uh, so far is about how technology mutates and how it evolves and progresses, and within living memory we've gone through several generations of things that had been previously inconceivable becoming real mm. and uh, then those becoming obsolete and something else inconceivable becoming real. Right now we are about at that point where we were with vacuum tubes in 1955 where it was a mature technology. Uh, you didn't have a lot of new original research being done. You were, you just had more engineering designs done to sharpen the price point sure. of consumer devices and stuff sure. like that. And that's kind of where we are with computers today until the, another shoe drops. Uh, and just between you and me and that flag in the background, or I think that's going to come is probably going to be diamond instead of silicon uh, as the substrate for semiconductors. Once we are able to make diamond wafers and dope them and etch them the way that we can do silicon wafers, they will be able to handle higher powers, higher frequencies, smaller uh, design elements. Everything about diamonds is superior to silicon performance-wise. The difficulty is fabricating pure crystals yeah. because, for one thing, there are companies working on this, and they are in a constant tug-of-war with powerful people who very much do not want people creating large pure artificial diamonds for completely unrelated regions yeah reasons. yeah yeah we got to hold on so, to the grip we can't have them knowing that they can synthesize this stuff i remember reading an article about that whole phenomenon about 10 years ago and the reporter uh who visited the company who was doing the wafer you know uh the the wafer technology uh made him go to the their factory in a van with no windows wearing a blindfold so I that he wouldn't it. know where it was and they were just like dude we can't let the De Beers people figure out what you know if they they'll, figure out what we're doing they'll kill us then they'll kill us they'll, they'll, there's no telling how they will react they yeah. will hire some there, mercenaries there was, they will kill us this is a realistic fear so yeah that's not yeah no that's not so, bullshit that's uh, a Tom, who is it Tom Ogle but the, the guy that made the car that ran on water but they were they, yeah. Well, that that's that's a may or may not have been a, a daffy conspiracy theory, but the the diamond thing is very real. And the you know these guys were like you know we don't give a shit about De Beers's business. That's not what we're trying. We are not trying to make yeah. pretty things to hang around women's necks. We are trying to make the next generation of electronics devices that will change the world. Yeah. And the you know the fact that they will start with a pretty crystal is not our problem. So, yeah. Um, so it's, anyway, yeah. Uh, yeah, we are, we are in for another shift of that nature. And uh, of course, that's one of the things Kurzweil uh, bangs mm -hmm. on about in his books um, that, uh, you know, we are probably one of those steps away from being able to create an artificial brain that is, the size and power consumption of a natural brain what we don't have we could probably already 
do the uh, a large one like Prime Intellect, you know, where we we use a much larger computer to emulate. But uh, there's also a software revolution needing to be taken place. And I, I tend to believe that the people who are investigating AI are barking up uh, several wrong trees right now um, because nothing about the natural scheme was ever designed. Yeah. Yeah. It just. And everybody is, everybody is off trying to design things. They're trying to design video handling modules. They're trying to design uh, things that would handle this, that, and the other. And I think what we need to do is let it discover how to become functional because i think uh i think this is a thing that has evolved separately several times and uh you've got very different animals at very different scales of complexity that are all doing very simple you know very similar things rather and we just happen to be the most complex expression of that yeah but that doesn't mean we are all that unique if you if you actually interact with animals at all then you know that you know dogs and cats obviously have emotions they obviously think about things they're capable of cognition uh i like to think that they you know, of, of what they, they do it at what I, I like to think of as a lower resolution mm. you know, so so they do what we do but they do it at a lower resolution like so they can't th- yeah. they can't think as far ahead they can't uh you know perhaps recognize as many things as we can or classify as many relationships between things in the world but within their limits they do very similar things to what we do um and you know we have we have parrots including uh an amazon who does talk and 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 he interacts with people uh in very human-like ways considering that his brain is about the size of one of the actually it's a lot smaller than that um then it's pretty remarkable that he knows what a lot of these words mean. And he very definitely does know what a lot of his words mean. Now, some of them means it's like, okay, cookie means mm-hmm. food. Mm-hmm. He asks for a cookie when he wants food, mm-hmm. but it also, it's very plain that this is his language. This is the way that he's absorbed and adopted it. And, uh, of course you've got Alex, the African gray that, uh, was able to, I mean, he basically smokes the primates at, at, natural human language um not not least because he speaks english instead of amelsan yeah. or spoke i think he finally died yeah um but you know there's 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 a lot waiting to be discovered yeah. is what, I, what i'm circling back around to and you know the gulf between this and where we are today is probably smaller than the gulf between us and something like prime intellect yeah at this point yeah it's yeah i think i think we're closer to that point than we were to today when this was the state of the art now do you think that in time or do you think that in technological progress because it might be farther technologically but shorter due to accelerating progress I tend to think those are closely related if you if you look at well things like your hard drive there and all uh <clears throat> that was an unthinkable uh, storage density 15 or 20 years ago. And the the hard drive, I mean, basically, you can go to every point in computing history in the last 40 years, and wherever you are was unthinkable 10 years before. Yeah. Uh, and and I, hilariously, I, when I was in college, 
uh, I was cruising the back stacks at the uh, college library at UNO, and I found the Proceedings of the American Computing Society. And I found some old, you know, they had old issues going back to the 50s and 60s. And I found an article from like the early 60s about some uh, university research group or something that had built a one kilo word uh, random access memory store. And what an advance this was because, because memory stores that large were things like you know, ferrite core, whatever, you know, they took time to read and write and all, but this was actually, uh, you know, solid, you know, this was, this was actually, uh, electronic Ram that could be updated quickly. And the algorithms that we would be able to research on this machine were totally new. And at the time I had a whole tube of two kilobyte, uh, static rams in my closet and they were obsolete so uh and of course nowadays uh i've got a whole tube of 256 kilobyte rams in that same pin factor and they're obsolete yeah um yeah so it's like when i when i repaired my uh oh um I have, I have a single board computer demo thing. Oh, our, our Cosmac Super Elf. Uh, when I repaired it, because when I got it, it had a bad memory board and no native chips. I actually had to install a memory chip on it that was anachronistic and too large because I couldn't get the obsolete ones that it had been designed to use. So I have this board and to, to make it work, I had to flip it over and on the back of it, I have a more modern IC hot glued and I have all the wires hand, you know, uh, point, yeah, you know, yeah. dead bug hand wired to the right points to use it. Uh, and, and, th- th- and that was, you know, the difference between the seven, you know, the, the mid seventies and the mid eighties. Yeah, it's it's insane. And and of course nowadays my wristwatch could cheat this thing at poker, and I don't even have an iWatch. You know, yeah, that's yeah. that's just my LCD timekeeper. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. I mean, like, what the fuck is just in like this AirPods case? You know, just probably more yeah. than anything. Yeah. Yeah, and and the thing is, you know, it's like I I got a lot of these tubes by uh driving around the neighborhood and looking for people who had thrown tv sets away and stuff and i would snarf them up and then clip all the commands i, mean, I hold drawers of parts from this that i'll never use because they're so obsolete half of them are bad now because they don't keep well yeah um ironically vacuum tubes are among the most stable components if you if you aren't powering them up they don't go bad they they, they don't wear out yeah. uh as long as you don't break them and let the air in yeah. uh that's why this 90 year old vacuum tube still does what it did when it was new um, and modern components, yeah, that's one of the things that we don't do very well. Uh, I was talking with one of the engineers at the, uh, one of our manufacturers that my company represents about their design challenges and everything. And he said that one of their suppliers had pointed out that there is a special class of capacitors for cell phones. And it's not that they work better they're actually crappier and cheaper than normal capacitors for regular work, but they know that you'll probably throw your cell phone away in two years, so they don't have to last as long. Yeah, yeah. Uh, planned obsolescence. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't matter. So, it doesn't it's, matter. so yeah. it's like, you know, 
there's a special class of especially crappy components that are made for cell phones because your cell phone isn't that expected to last more than two years. Yeah. It's Did you, yeah. <laughs> fucking so, A. There's that. <laughs> anyway. Well. Um, I, I think you wanted to wrap it up. So, yeah. uh, let's wrap I'm, this. I'm getting hungry too. Yeah. Let's wrap. Yeah. Yeah. My mom made some soup. It's like a, it's like, I think it's like chickpea and like sausage. I don't know, but it smells fucking delicious. And that, that is how you know good. we're still, yeah, yeah. That's how you know we're still far away from prime intellect as I still run on this glucose and protein substrate to make my <laughs> computer work. You know, laptop can go indefinitely. And I'm like, I can smell through my olfactory sensors. I'm like, ah, oh, glucose, <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah. So, um, <laughs> sorry for anyone that had to see that. Let's, um, yeah, I'm same time next week. Delving, delving to more technology. Let's do it. Maybe, maybe a little history of the porn industry too. Fuck yeah, dude! Like, fuck yeah, <laughs> fuck yeah! That'll be awesome, dude. Got nothing but time. This podcast isn't going any. Knock on wood. This podcast isn't going anywhere. Well, now that I'm building, I call, I'm calling it NORAD. That's what I'm calling the safe yeah. with the with the hard drives in it. Now that I'm building NORAD, yeah, we can fucking doesn't matter. I can store this shit forever. House can burn down, get flooded, fire. It's got EMP protection. This thing is turning in. I am I am sowing the seeds of an embryo for prime intellect. It's forming. It's there forming right now. <laughs> yeah. When uh, when we came back after Katrina, the uh, the storm had blown one of the gable panels off the side of my attic, mm -hmm. and my fireproof safe was just sitting there in the opening, like just sitting there, right? Because it had been against the wall. And the wall was gone, so I, I just drove up in the neighborhood, and it's like the first thing I see is all of my private shit, just and you know, just sitting there waiting for someone to steal the whole safe. You yeah, know? it's like oh, uh, that doesn't work well. Yeah, <laughs> so I'm getting the one I'm getting. It's fireproof and waterproof, so I figure if it's on fire, it's gonna get put out with water. So I'm protecting against both. And uh, yeah. that that is the idea behind those. Yes. <laughs> Fuck you. Uh, and... Fuck you, Roger. <laughs> They, yeah, they're also rated by the length of time it takes to break into them, which is never infinity. No, 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 uh, you're right. Any, yeah. any, any safe can be broken. So part of the rating is the time it would take a professional safe cracker to break into the safe. Yeah, yeah. Well, if, shit, if they want to steal my hard drives, I mean, you're not finding any yeah. De Beers in there. You're finding a bunch of episodes like this talking about the history of porn. <laughs> so, I mean, I think that's my biggest, like, safety is no one trying to take it. It's... <laughs> oh, I, I hate losing data, man. That yeah. That is just like the most heartbreaking thing. You realize that you put a bunch of work into something yes. and you don't have a copy of it anymore because it's like ephemeral. Yeah, and just... somehow you lost the last copy. And that just, I mean... Yeah, it's, it's I, tragic. I, I, can't, I can't bring myself to try to recreate it sometimes just because it's so heartbreaking. I'm just like, no, I'm done with that no, project. It's done. Screw it's done. it. It's I, gone. I, it's I, forever. I, yeah. It's, yeah. It's, don't, don't try to bring it back. But, it's gone. It's, it's it's lost to the ages. Whatever, I'll yeah, do something different. It's, um, it's contact. So. It's floating out at the speed of light <laughs> with Hitler <Yeah>. speeches. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Roger Williams, author of the Metamorphosis of Prime Intellect, will be in the bio and in the top comment. My favorite story. It's badass, and as, as we creep t closer to the future, I think it's becoming more and more of a reality. To be continued next week. Pornography, diamonds, the future of technology. And whatever the fuck else we want to talk about. Hey, it's been fun. 
Fuck yeah, Roger. Thank you Looking again for doing to. it, man. I love having you on. It's so much fucking fun. I forget that you're the author of my favorite book, and that just adds an especially <laughs> awesome tint to it. But uh, fuck yeah, man. I can't wait for the next one. Thank you for the show until today. And let's get right back into it next week. Peace, Sounds buddy. Like a plant. Godspeed. Stay safe.